Well, uh, what do you think? If, uh, if people were actually talking more openly about money, uh, would things be better? Or is, uh, is all of the, the fret and the worry, the anxiety, or, or maybe even the boredom, is all of that better sort of swept under the rug? You know, throughout this, uh, this series and this month, we're doing what we don't typically do. We are talking about uh, the elephants in the room, the big and heavy conversations that we, you know, that we feel, we know that they're there, but we generally don't like to talk about them. And uh, the elephant that we're addressing this morning is the elephant of money. Because like that, uh, that ad began to hint at, we actually believe if that we could find a helpful and healthy way to talk about money, that, that things and life could actually be better. But you know, why, as we get into this, why, why is money an elephant in the room anyways? I think there's probably a number of reasons. I think for one, uh, maybe for some of us, we didn't really get taught how to talk about money. Uh, it's not necessarily part of our sort of standard education curriculum. Maybe it wasn't talked about in your household. Maybe your parents didn't seem to talk about money or they at least didn't talk to you uh, as their kid. You know, some people tell us that it's impolite to talk about money. You know, it, it's far too personal. And who really wants to get personal in our relationships, I guess? And I think all in all, the world just kind of impresses this feeling upon us that, that money is something that you have to figure out all on your own. And it's such a high stakes game. And so the sort of the pressure and the, any questions or anxiety or confusion, it can feel kind of embarrassing to admit. But then you bring all of that into a faith community, into the church. And I think there's a couple more, maybe more nuanced, maybe even more volatile reasons that people find it hard to talk about money. You know, maybe you've heard uh, a few too many sketchy sermons or you've witnessed too many scandals that make it feel like all the church wants is money. That all the church wants is your money. And to make it kind of worse and more complicated, it's those that give that impression that seem to be the ones that financially benefit from the church getting your money. But even if you can get past those, those concerns, I think we maybe just feel like if we, if we talk about money, uh, we're somehow going to be judged or compared to, or that we're going to be guilted into living and giving differently. But kind of like the, the participants in the video, you could kind of feel it. I think for a lot of us at the heart of it, if we were honest, we, we actually wish there was a way we could live differently with our money. So I don't know, if you're, if you're at all anxious about this conversation, this elephant in the room, here's what I want to say. What, what we're not going to do is we're not going to have a conversation trying to tell you to give money to the church. That's not, not what this is about. Um, frankly, I'm not trying to give a message necessarily to tell you what to do with your money because I believe sort of the biggest problem, the biggest obstacle standing in our way to, to talking about money in a way that actually makes life better is that we don't actually see money for what money really is. That we actually have a distorted view of this thing called money and it makes it sort of unhealthy and unhelpful in how we talk about it, uh, making it almost impossible to have a conversation. You see, our big idea today is that talking about money requires seeing money for what money really is. Talking about money requires seeing money for what money really is. Uh, in uh, this book, 
the soul of money. I read this this summer as I was thinking about this conversation. It's a really uh, helpful resource in kind of reshaping your relationship with money. And uh, the author, and she's a philanthropist, Lynn Twist, uh, she writes about this skewed or distorted perspective, confused perspective we have about money. And I just want to read for you uh, an extended excerpt from her opening chapter. She writes, everyone is interested in money. And almost all of us feel a chronic concern or even a fear that we will never really have enough or be able to keep enough of it. Many of us pretend that money isn't important to us or we think that it shouldn't be. While many others live openly with the accumulation of money as our primary goal. It makes money the most universally motivating, mischievous, miraculous, maligned, and misunderstood part of contemporary life. But here's the thing. Money is not a product of nature. Money doesn't grow on trees. Money is an invention. Money still facilitates the sharing and exchange of goods and services, but somewhere along the way, the power we gave money, it outstripped its original utilitarian role. We have made money more important than we are. We have given it more meaning than human life. Humans have done and will do terrible things in the name of money. They've killed for it. They've enslaved other people for it. They've even enslaved themselves to joyless lives in pursuit of it. For most of us, this relationship with money is a deeply conflicted one. And our behavior with and around money is often at odds with our most deeply held values, commitments, and ideals. I'll read that last part again. Our relationship with money is often at odds with our most deeply held values, commitments, and ideals. If you've ever felt that kind of struggle or tension in your relationship with money, my hope this morning is that we can have a life-changing conversation. Start a conversation about money that makes things better. Because I believe talking about money requires seeing money for what money really is. And if we can see money differently, I think we'll talk about it in a productive way. And so what we want to do this morning is to try to kind of reshape our perspective on money. And how I'm going to help us do this is I want to give us uh, three words and three Bible stories that are going to serve as kind of new lenses to how we look at money. Perspective-shaping lenses to see money differently. And the first word and lens that I want to give us is the, the lens of abundance. It's our first word, abundance. And uh, the story that I want to look at uh, in the scriptures to kind of help illustrate this, it comes from Matthew chapter 25, Verses 14 to 29. Now this is a, a story that has a lot of layers to it and, and a lot of depth. Uh, and I'm actually not going to read the whole thing for us. I'm going I'm to summarize it because I just want us to see kind of one, one big idea. But uh, if anyone in our community, especially if you've been around for the last number of years, if you haven't had enough of the book of Matthew yet, um, Mike Krause, he preached an entire sermon on this passage. Uh, if you wanted to dig into it, you, could, you can check that out. He preached it in the fall. Um, but we're just going to look at one piece of it. So Basically, this story, uh, it's actually a parable, a story that Jesus is telling to help illustrate how the world works. And basically, Jesus says in this passage, he says that the kingdom of God, the way the world is intended to work when God is right at the center of it, it's like this. It's like a wealthy man who goes on a journey. He kind of goes on a business trip. And as he goes, he entrusts all of his wealth, all of his resources to his people. 
And in fact, the text says that he entrusts it to his servants. And you have to understand, in first century culture, servants are like really low on the social ladder. But this wealthy man, he entrusts everything to his servants. And the story highlights three of these servants, each of whom is entrusted with a different amount of money for various reasons. The first one is given five bags of gold. That's kind of how they describe the currency. The second one gets two bags of gold. And the third servant gets one bag of gold. But regardless of the amounts, the first two, they immediately kind of put the, the, the money they've received to work. They allow the wealth that the master has entrusted to them to flow through them and carry on their master's business, trying to see it multiply in its impact. But the third servant was a little different. Out of some kind of fear, concern, worry that maybe that there, depending on how he handles it, there won't be enough when the master returns. He takes it and he buries it hiding in a place where it's only known and available to him. And later on, when the master returns, the first two servants, they're, they're eager to report back on what they've been able to do with the money, how they've seen the master's business continue. And the master says to them, he says, Well done, my good and faithful servants. Come and share in your master's happiness. Come and share in the joy. But the servant who had hid the money comes forward kind of sheepishly. And again, he admits he was afraid. He felt like he had to keep the money hidden while the master was gone or he might not have it to return to him. And as a result, the master, uh, he decides to transfer that one bag of gold from that third servant to the ones who had been participating in his business. Now this story, it's not about figuring out how we can get more out of God It's not really about the specific amounts of money that were given to the servants. For today, I just want to see that it's about how this whole thing works. Jesus said the kingdom of God, the way the world is intended to work is like this. And it's how I believe God has set it up, where it all starts. And it all starts with abundance. It all starts with this idea of abundance. You see, the story has a ridiculous premise. This, this man is outrageously wealthy and he decides just to entrust everything he has to his servants. This wealthy man who represents God in the story. And the amount of money translated in the original parable in the first century terms, it, those eight bags of gold equate to $5.4 million in kind of dollars and cents. And again, that's first century terms. If you try to extrapolate that into 2,000 years of inflation, now you have a sense of how generous, how abundant this master is. And I think being able to see and then talk about money differently it first means learning to see the world through an abundance mentality. That everything we have, we've received as a gift. And the source of all that is, that being God, is a source of abundant provision, of grace, of entrustment, of unmerited favor. And our job or our invitation is into participation, celebration, and sharing in the master's happiness. And that if we participate in the master's abundant provision, maybe there will actually be enough to go around. But I think our problem is too often we live with a scarcity mentality. We think that there's, there's not going to be enough. You know, it's kind of like we're playing a game of musical chairs with our economy. And you got to fight for your chair and, and someone is just going to be left out. That's just, that's just how it works. We see this personally. We see it politically. 
That some people, some countries just have to be left out because we got to keep what's ours. But I want to contrast this with an experience I had a few years ago um, when I had the immense privilege to travel uh, to Uganda, actually with a group right here from our Southridge community. We went to visit some of the child survival programs and child sponsorship programs that our community uh, financially supports in partnership uh, with Compassion Canada. And we've got a picture here of, uh, of Pastor Alfred Imojong. Uh, pastor Alfred is the gentleman in the center here. And uh, he's, the, he's the pastor of Lubanyi Baptist Church in Lubanyi, Uganda, home to one of our, our child survival programs as a, as a community. And what was cool is that uh, on the Sunday that we were there, we got to uh, visit and attend their church service. And I think we have a picture here of the, the community here in their facility. You can see hundreds of people uh, piled in there together, some uh, standing, some sitting on the dirt floor, others holding children, all in this modest brick facility with only a tarp for a roof. And uh, you can see, uh, I think you can see here the posts holding up the tarp. There was actually a few moments throughout the service where uh, it kind of looked like some of those posts were going to topple over and the whole tarp might come down. Uh, but just like we have ushers and greeters, they seem to have a volunteer position dedicated to holding up the posts so that the, the tarp wouldn't come down. You know, you look at a community like this and by at least North American economic standards, you, you might say, these are one bag of gold people. And in fact, that, that might not be totally fair to say and could, could potentially even be offensive because there may be folks in this community who would do anything to have a, a literal bag of gold. They might be economically by our standards less than one bag of gold people. And if there was ever a place or a context where you had reason to live with a scarcity mentality as far as resources are concerned, it's in environments like this. But I have to tell you, I have never seen a community that lives more like five bags of gold kind of people than I have seen here. And I want to give you a little glimpse of it. Uh, so check out this video for a moment. Just a, a beautiful scene. I don't know if you, you caught what that pastor was saying as he was translating the song of the guy who was really breaking it down there. He said, when I see what the Lord does, I kneel down and worship. When you plant corn, when you plant anything, he makes it grow and he provides. What a perspective of abundant provision, even in the midst of relatively meager resources. You know, there's one uh, experience and scene from that service that I wish I could show you, but I actually didn't film out of respect for the moment. And that was their financial offering collection. And you saw the singing and the dancing and the hooting and the hollering. 
And if you could imagine turning all of that up by 10, and that was their offering experience. It was like, it was their favorite part of the service, most energetic, most enthusiastic. Can you imagine that? You know, I know I'm, I'm a participant here, and I know it'd be hard for us to imagine that the offering could be the most exciting, enthusiastic part of the service. But it was as each of them paraded down to the front one by one to bring whatever gift they had that day. And you know, they were all doing it out of faith and a belief that one day there might be enough to have a roof on their facility to make things a little bit safer. And this is the update of their, their community today. Just a beautiful scene and a celebration of God's provision. You know, these are people who have learned how to look at life and money in a way that shares in the abundance of their master's happiness. And maybe we could a little more today as well. So our first lens this morning is abundance. And then the second word, the second lens I want to talk about is togetherness. Togetherness. And uh, the story in the scriptures that I want to share that kind of highlights what we mean by togetherness, it's actually the story of the early church. Shortly after Jesus was reported as being risen from the dead, the the community that formed and the way of life that was being adopted was just incredible. And it's it's written about in uh, Acts chapter 4 as it talks about how the believers behaved. In verses 32 to 35, it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses, they sold them, they brought the money from the sales, and they put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Look at those two lines in particular. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. And there were no needy persons among them. How countercultural is that? How amazing is that? Can you imagine the freedom that comes from that kind of togetherness? You know, Lotto 649 tells us to imagine a certain kind of financial freedom, but I think it pales in comparison to the freedom that is expressed here. And this is what Jesus is inviting us into. It's this way of life that is the Christian way of life. That Christians don't claim possessions as their own. But I'll admit to you, and you may be feeling this as well, that I'm not sure I fully embrace this dynamic of the Christian life. Because I know I tend to see money and possessions as something that I have to retain ownership of and even accumulate more of all the time. But that only contributes to a spirit of competition and comparison, making it even harder to talk about money. But what if we could live as though everything we had and everything that exists, that it's meant to be shared? Lynn Twist in The Soul of Money, uh, she uses the word collaboration to describe this same kind of idea. And she paints a really beautiful picture this way. She says, potlucks, carpools, timeshares, playgroups, quilting bees, these activities, these ways of sharing with and caring for each other, they enrich our lives more than we realize. And perhaps more than money ever will or could. Collaboration, she says, or, or togetherness, it leads us to And it grounds us in sufficiency or abundance. Implicit in collaboration is the trust that says there is enough. And we will figure out how to use it together wisely. Could you imagine if we believe that there is enough and we will figure out how to use it together wisely? 
Uh, this, this idea, it struck me in another book I had read this summer. Uh, it's called The Inconvenient Indian, and it's written by a native Canadian named Thomas King. And I, I was reading it to try to grow in my understanding of some of the challenges of indigenous communities and native North Americans in the 21st century. And as I thought about this togetherness idea, I was, I was looking at what I learned about their culture and wondering what it seems we've lost in the assimilation of indigenous cultures as kind of our European culture has, has taken over here. Thomas King, he writes this about that transition. He says, since the arrival of Europeans, private ownership of land has been one of the cornerstones of non-native society and economy. Land to the European mind, it gave an individual station within society and was a certain source of wealth. It started creating this social hierarchy. Land could be bought, sold, and traded with more assurance than currency. Indians, though, or the native community, through inclination, and I'd wonder whether there's some spiritual wisdom here, through inclination and treaty, they held land in common. They held what they had together. What I saw here is that much more like the early Christian church in the book of Acts, native North Americans saw land and food and possessions as shared resources to be cultivated as a community rather than accumulated and privatized as individuals. A kind of togetherness that freed them from the grips and the weight of the elephant of money, sharing that burden rather than carrying it alone. Lynn Twist also talked about how this is more prevalent in indigenous cultures. And she's familiar with the, the Achuar people of the Amazon. They're, they're a present day uh, indigenous uh, community that has existed for hundreds, if not thousands of years without any need for financial currency, with no use whatsoever for money. And as she writes about her, their history, she says this, she says, reciprocity was the social currency. It was understood that everyone shared with everyone else and everyone took care of everyone else. If Tantu's daughter married Natum's son, then their friends and neighbors came together to build them a house. When a hunter killed a wild boar, the whole village feasted. All this, it kind of makes me wonder, as we've gained privatized ownership and individualized wealth, what have we lost in experiencing the togetherness of the ways, the way things are meant to be in the kingdom of God? You know, one more story of togetherness that uh, kind of brings it into our context, our community, and our time. Uh, a friend of mine told me a neat story recently where uh, he was telling me about how uh, his money was kind of tight for, for he and his family. They'd kind of fallen a little bit behind and had a bit of a cash flow shortage month to month due to some unforeseen expenses and emergencies uh, that had come up. And they had shared this with a few folks uh, in our church community, mostly just looking for some advice, some prayer support. But just a couple weeks later, they found uh, in their mailbox an anonymous envelope with $1,000 cash, which was a huge help to kind of get them caught up and back on track. And to me, it's just this beautiful example of how talking about money within a community that is built on togetherness, how it can actually make managing money easier for all of us. And that maybe those of us who have a little bit more at times, if we lived with this togetherness mindset, how we could, we could actually contribute to miraculous stories like that. And those of us who may have a little less at times, we could actually live to depend on miraculous stories. So our first perspective this morning was abundance. Our second is togetherness. 
And the third word and perspective that I want to talk about is generosity. Generosity. In, uh, in Luke 21, the first verse is, uh, this is what it says. It says, as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. But he also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, she put in all she had to live on. You know, contrary to what I think we, we tend to believe, I don't think generosity has anything to do with a certain number of zeros. I think it's way more about a posture, about a heart attitude, you know, an open-heartedness and an open-handedness. I think generosity has to do with letting go of something. And for starters this morning, it might just mean letting go of some of our preconceived notions and ways of talking or not talking about money. Because like abundance and togetherness, I think generosity helps us discover that conversations about money, they actually have incredible potential for joy and excitement. I think generosity is kind of the energizer or the game changer to make our conversations about money actually exciting, actually something that we look forward to. You know, when I think of this poor widow uh, that's in this story here with Jesus, it reminds me of my, my grandma Braun. We have a picture here of my grandma Braun. Uh, she's my mom's mom. Uh, or she was known to my kids, her great-grandchildren, as Grandma Grace. Now, grandma Grace, she had a pretty tough upbringing. Uh, she was one of 11 siblings growing up on a farm in Saskatchewan. You know, money was tight and she only got to go to school up until grade six and then she had to, to work on the farm and she learned to work really hard from a young age and that work ethic persisted throughout her whole life although it never amounted to, to all that much uh, economically. When my grandma moved to Ontario, she married my grandpa, but uh, unfortunately alcohol got the best of him and it made life difficult uh, and even scary at times for my grandma and her kids, in, including my mom. Eventually things got, got so bad, uh, they had to separate and they, they divorced and that left my grandma on her own uh, to try to care for the kids who were still at home. And she would work multiple jobs, often three jobs at a time, cleaning apartments late into the night, taking the bus because she didn't have a car, all to try to provide uh, for her family. Later on in life, though, uh, my grandpa, he actually, he came to faith in Jesus. He put his trust in Jesus and it changed his life dramatically. My family members talk about a night and day transformation in his life. And what was amazing is that my grandparents actually got back together and ended up uh, remarrying. But uh, not long after that, he fell ill to cancer and uh, he died when I was about two years old. And that left my grandma alone as a widow for the last 30 years of her life, doing her, her best to kind of get by through the, the rest of life on her limited income and even more limited savings. But you know what? In the midst of all of her challenges, I don't think I knew a person who experienced more joy and exuded more generosity than my grandma Braun or grandma Grace you see, money was never an object to her that she had any interest in accumulating or keeping to herself. And as a result, she was more than comfortable talking about how she wanted to see it flow through her to the things and people that mattered most. And then she would put that money 
where her mouth was to see those things happen. With over 40 uh, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, there wasn't a birthday or a Christmas that went by that we didn't get a, a personalized written card that she had written and mailed from her small apartment in the senior's home, including a check for $10 every single time. And that doesn't sound like much, but you take all 40 of those, of those grandkids and all of those holidays year after year, and it really adds up over time. And beyond uh, lifelong faithful contributions to her local church, she regularly would tell us about causes that she heard about on the radio, or the emergencies that we would see on TV, and she would immediately respond by sending what she could. And, you know, out of her joy, she could actually graciously encourage others to do the same. And finally, when she passed in the summer of 2015, I think I have a photo here of the, this is the last time our family uh, got to to be with her. In her passing, the things that marked her legacy were the donations she made in her will. First, some money that went to her church, then to some other ministries and causes that she cared about. And finally, $1,000 for each grandchild that she had made sure was sort of still in the pot that could go to each of them, basically draining her estate as the money just went to those that mattered. You see, Grandma didn't see money as money. She saw it as a way for the, the love of God to flow through her right until she passed. And at the end of the day, she lived a life of faithful generosity and she experienced a death of generous legacy. She was never afraid to talk about the abundance, the togetherness, and the generosity of God along the way. Well, this joy of, of generosity, uh, it's one that I know I am still learning. And as I talk about all these things this morning, I, I know that you're probably not going to believe all of it right away because I know I haven't always believed all of it. Frankly, we have been hardwired not to. Our culture and our advertising is constantly sending us the opposite message that, that there isn't enough, you can never quite get enough, and whatever you have, getting more of it is better, and that that's how the whole system has to work. You know, and, and sometimes we can doubt this. I remember back when Lindsay and I were first married and we first started having to, to talk about money and we were trying to live into, figuring out what it meant to live into this, this Jesus invitation of faithfully contributing to our local church and giving to causes that God had placed on our hearts. And at the time, uh, big screen, flat screen TVs, they were becoming the norm and not the exception. Um, and all of our friends, they were kind of upgrading from the big, ugly rear projecting TV that we still had to the, to the latest frat screen. And they were kind of cool and, you know, we kind of wanted one too. And I can remember the struggle of when I would do our budget and I would look at the money and the sort of the 10% tithe that we were giving to our church in a regular way. I remember thinking, fantasizing about if, if we didn't do that, it wouldn't actually take very long. Maybe, maybe only a month or two to be able to get the, the flat screen TV that we wanted at the time. But you know what? Fast forward 10 years and that disciplined practice of giving, of tithing to the church and, and giving to the causes that God has put in front of us or placed on our hearts, it has changed me. It has changed us. It has changed the nature of the conversation and brought a kind of joy and excitement I couldn't imagine. You know, when, I, when we get letters from our sponsor children, who tell us about how our small but consistent contributions are helping change their lives and the trajectory of their families' lives. 
And then I get to see our kids interact with letters and our kids have a, a bigger, different view of the world. I, I wouldn't trade that for anything. That's infinitely more valuable than whatever the latest, greatest thing is that we could want today. Abundance, togetherness, and generosity. And one more story I'll tell you uh, before I close. When I was 16, I did what many of us do, and I, I went to driver's ed training uh, in order to try to fast track uh, my G2 licensing. And uh, I remember I had a, a fascinating instructor. She was a lady who had as many stories about uh, breaking the rules of the road as she did about following them, which kind of made you wonder whether she was more or less qualified to, uh, to teach the class. But there was one story that she told us that has always stuck with me. It was about when she was uh, experiencing skid control training. Skid control training. She had to drive down a runway at a pretty fast pace and she had an instructor with her. She had to drive down this runway and at a particular spot where it was, it was wet on the runway, she had to intentionally crank the wheel hard to, to, to put the car out of control on purpose and then find her way out of the skid to kind of straighten out on the runway. As she tried, she was really struggling. She'd try and fail, try and fail, could never quite get the car straightened out in the way that she was supposed to and, and really thought she wasn't going to be able to do it until the instructor, he called the timeout, they hopped out of the car and he said to her, when the car goes out of control, where are you looking? Where are you looking? And she thought for a moment, you know, she thought maybe she wasn't that conscious of it, of where she had been looking, but she reflected, she thought, you know what, I keep looking through the windshield. When we get out of control, I look, I look ahead through the windshield to try to see which way I need to turn to get back to the runway. And he said, you don't need to look at the windshield. He said, you need to look at the runway. Because here was the point. He said, where you look is where you go. That where you look is where you go. And I think the same is true in our lives. And I think the same is true with our money. You might say this morning, how you look is how you'll go. That how you look at this thing called money is going to affect how you're able to talk about it, how you're able to relate to it, and ultimately whether or not we can participate in what God wants to do in us and through us with it. Jesus in his infinite wisdom in the first century, he said it this way. He said, where your treasure is, your heart will also be. That where your treasure is, where your money is, where you put your money and where you're looking at things with your money, it's going to affect your heart. It's going to affect your life. It's going to affect how you go in the world. You see, I think how we see money affects our ability to talk about money. Talking about money in a way that's helpful and productive and makes life better, it requires seeing money for what it really is. So what if we could change our perspective about money? What if we could see money differently? Not as a scarce resource, but as a useful invention to facilitate giving and receiving and experiencing gratitude for God's abundant provision. You know, what if we could see it not as something that we have to battle alone or keep to ourselves, but as a reality that affects us all, but that can be embraced and shared together. You know, not as something to be hoarded and held but as an instrument of the generous love of God intended to flow through us to one another. You see, this isn't just a conversation about how we see money. This is a conversation about how we see God. Because our God is a God of abundance. And our God, he's a God of togetherness and community and relationship. And our God is a God of generosity. 
And here's the good news. The good news is that money doesn't run the world. God does. And God doesn't use money to run the world. He actually uses us because God sees people as the most valuable resource. And guess what? We can too. And that'll change our conversation. That'll change our concern about money. What I've observed in myself, I've observed this in others, is that the only thing scarce is the ability to see the world for what it is. To actually see God for who he is. To see money for what it is. To see our wallets, our credit cards, our loans, our bank accounts for what they really are. Instruments to share the love of God. And it's the life, the teaching, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus that makes new ways of seeing possible. New ways of behaving possible. New ways of talking possible. And new ways of living possible. So if you're eager for a change in the conversation, if you're interested in having an exciting conversation, what if we could adopt these lenses? Abundance, togetherness, generosity. What if we could realize when a scarcity mentality is getting the best of us? Or when we're going it alone and we need to invite others in? What if we asked each other, what if, how could the love of God flow through us to a greater degree? I think we should start that kind of conversation and I think it will actually make things better. Uh, let me say a prayer for us. God, we thank you so much uh, for who you are and everything that you have provided for us. You uh, have given us such gifts of life and of community and of the, the resources uh, that we get to enjoy. And God, may we see you for who you really are as such a good and loving provider. And God, I'm sure for some of us this morning, this is the conversation about money, in addition to the tension and the awkwardness, some people might be in a really tough spot with money. And I pray that as a community, we could work together to provide for them. And God, there may be others of us at a different end of the, end of the spectrum who may feel like we have more money than we know what to do with. Maybe you want to know whether we're using it wisely and are being challenged in this conversation. I pray for those of us in that place that our hearts would be inspired in this conversation and together as a community, we could guide one another. But God, help us to see the whole thing as a gift. Help us to see our money for what it really is, just an instrument that we can use in the world to, to participate in your purposes and your happiness. And it's through the power and name of Jesus that we're able to do this. So we pray in his name. Amen.